Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free, but you can give them to the birds and bees. I From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money. Thanks for being here. I'm your host, Chris Hill, and joining me in studio this week from Motley Fool Inside Value, Joe Mager, from Motley Fool Income Investor, James Early. And for Million Dollar Portfolio, Ron Gross. Gentlemen, good to see you as always. Hey, you doing, Chris? Chris. Earnings Palooza rolls on. 150 companies in the S&P 500 reported earnings this week, and we will talk about each and every one of them. No. <laughs> this is an extended version of <laughs> Rapid Fire. Uh, we'll, we'll cherry pick. Do we charge we'll, more for that? Uh, <laughs> it'll be the same price <laughs> okay, as always. Uh, we will dip into the full mailbag, and we will, of course, share a few of the stocks that are on our radar. But we begin with the biggest public company, and that is Apple. Apple's fourth quarter earnings came in lower than expected as iPad sales fell short of analyst forecasts. Ron Gross, you're up first. What did you think? It depends how you look at it. So a rare miss, because they're notorious for sandbagging. They usually outperform. Yep. Street doesn't like that, but the stock is okay. The now, stock didn't get hit all that hard. <laughs> right, exactly. So now it depends. Let's look at things on an absolute basis, not a versus expectations basis. How did it look? Revenue up 27%. Profit up 24%. Margins not great. Some guidance not great. But the company still could put, puts up a ton of cash flow. They're, these numbers are unbelievable. So, um, Ron, yes. I'm sorry, but you've said on the show like a hundred times that investing is all about expectations. It is, in the short term. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yes. And then if we look long term, we can take advantage of those short sighted people. Mm. Uh, they, they did better on phones, right? But not as, as well on iPads. Right. The iPads, which were up 26%, by the way, were less than analysts were expecting. So, there, there is certainly some concern there. There's certainly con- some concern about whether this iPad iPad Mini is is going to be a big bust, or does the world really need it? Um, some analysts are saying they're going to sell 10 million by the end of the year at lower margins, but still 10 million. Um, others are saying we don't really get it; we don't get the price point. Uh, we'll get to the iPad Mini in a moment, but you mentioned different concerns, and you also said it was a rare miss, and yet it was their second quarter in a row yeah. that they missed on earnings. Should that start to become a concern for investors that the act of managing expectations, which you know a lot of any smart company does that, is that a concern? I'll go with yes. Um, I don't love to play the expectations game, but if the company is not able to predict its its um, its results as well as it used to be, there, there's, that means there's something going on, whether it's a channel or a supply. I mean, they are supply constrained. They say their backlog is pretty significant right now because of some supply issues. So maybe they're not able to predict as well as they had been in the past what the business is going to look like. Is it premature to describe Tim Cook as a train wreck? <laughs> I, th- I think that's a little harsh, yes. Uh, Joe, as uh, Ron mentioned, the iPad Mini was unveiled this week. Apple had an event on Tuesday. Uh, and as we talked about on Market Foolery, our uh, daily podcast, uh, it seems like the, the big surprise of the event was not the actual unveiling of the iPad Mini, but the price tag, which is yeah. 329 kind of higher than a lot of people are expecting. Yeah, it's 132 dollars more than the Google Nexus 7 and the Kindle Fire HD, which are relatively comparable, not quite as Comparable nice. in size. Yeah, comparable in size and, you know, in different quality aspects, too. But I think the $330 price point is definitely a far cry from 199 And I think those companies are still going to be taking a lot of share at the low end. And, you know, it was kind of a, a no man's land price point, really. I'm not sure who is going to get excited about this. And I think really the people who are going to be buying the iPad mini or people who walk into Apple stores, see an iPad and they're excited about it, but they can't afford it. And it's like, well, we've got a lower price 
point here, and they'll go with that. And, but. and the real techies out there, like, I really want one, but I have no idea why. I don't need it. <laughs> it, it seems like something that would be cool to have, but I already have an well, iPad. I don't see the James, the I was thinking of you, because you've said before, I mean, you have all manner of Apple devices in your home. When you saw the, the device that was unveiled on Tuesday, what did you think? Well, it's the kind of thing I might get, Chris, because I can walk around the house. I actually have a Kindle Fire already that I can walk around the house and watch my you know, uh, little shows, educational-type programs and stuff on. But to me, it's just a small TV. I'm, I'm kind of crude. Chris, but they, I'd pay they, so much money for a peek at the early house. <laughs> it's less exciting than you think. <laughs> yeah. okay. um, it's probably also worth mentioning, um, finally, this week, Microsoft's uh, Windows 8 was released to the public. Um, this is something we've uh, heard about for uh, literally a year. Um, while there were no earnings announcements, Ron, Microsoft is a company you watch closely. How big a payoff do you think there's going to be for Windows 8, the new operating system? Well, I, th- I think it's fair to say this is critical. Um, and I don't have a projection about how this is going to turn out. There's mixed reviews. Um, it is faster. It's more powerful. You know, They're moving into the mobile world with touch and social networking capabilities. Um, this will build up Windows Phone 8 will, will come uh, as well. Um, that's huge for them, as well as Nokia. Um, so they've got to get it done. Their track record leaves me uh, on things like this leaves me a little bit concerned. Um, but again, we like the stock. We think on a cash flow generating basis, it is cheap. But if the cash flow dwindles, I mean, then you've got to reevaluate. Is it more exciting than the iPad 4? What about the Zune? More exciting than the Zune? (laughs) Everything is more exciting than the Zune. Amazon posted its first quarterly loss in more than five years, and not surprisingly, Joe, uh, shares down a little bit this week. What did did you make of Amazon's quarter? Oh, I thought, you know, in black and white terms, it wasn't good. It was their first operating loss in about a decade, but when you cut through the noise, basically Amazon is making a ton of investments in marketing and building new distribution centers and in selling Kindles that basically I think are adding a lot of long-term value for the business. And that is really the crux of the Amazon thesis at this point, that if you trust management is creating value with these investments, then I think it's a buy. And if not, then it's a screaming sell. So I, you know, I personally think that they're all good moves. You know, you look at the Kindle, everyone kind of criticizes because it's selling basically at zero gross margin. Uh, so they're selling it at cost. But the real value for Amazon is that they're creating new customers and entrenched relationships for life. And Amazon has said that they're happy to invest money and not get a payback for seven years. It was a very, very long time. That's a very long time. It is. But <laughs> I love that mentality, and I think it's going to serve them very well. It's just going to be a bumpy ride to get there. How do you cut through the noise? Isn't that a mixed metaphor? <laughs> you know, noise is a, an audio thing, and cutting is like cutting the fog, maybe. And on that note, right. what I love about Amazon is that it feels to me like they run this company no differently than if it was still private. Um, they're going to do what they think needs to be done, and and it doesn't mean their conference calls are going to be any good. Joe and I were no. speaking earlier; they don't necessarily give away a ton of information, but they're going to execute um, the way they think it needs to be done. And if that means it's an investment that takes seven years to come to fruition, then that's what they're going to do. I think that's what we Facebook should be operating too, by the way. Um, and that's one thing I, I've always liked about Bezos. And you're using your hands as you make. This I am. Point, I'm, which means I'm, you really I'm very passionate yeah. about yeah. this. 
Procter and Gamble's first quarter profits fell seven percent, but earnings still came in better than expected. And James Early shares hit a three-year high. What do you think? Well, this is great for for CEO Bob McDonald because his head actually gets to remain on his body. Um, <laughs> this guy has been under fire. Uh, you know, Warren Buffett has sold some shares. Uh, Bill Ackman has been uh, as an activist hedge fund investor has been campaigning for his removal. P and G has has really been issuing some poor results all this year. They they bumped down their guidance a number of times. I think they learned the important lesson that sometimes success is just as simple as putting out results that are not abysmal, uh, which is which is what they did here. Um, you know, they, they beat earnings uh, rather nicely. The next challenge is simply to do it again. When uh, you look uh, at a global company like this, how big a concern is the ongoing trouble in Europe, specifically when it comes to P&G or you know just companies of that ilk, you know Colgate, Palmolive, etc. Uh, for, for all of them, maybe a little less for P&G because they just weren't as good internationally to begin with. That was one of the criticisms uh, of Bob McDonald, along with not innovating and, and, and over you know sort of a bloated cost structure. So, but but anybody who's exposed there is suffering. It's just the reality of the economy. Yeah, we were talking earlier. Um, that this earnings season, certainly the theme is you know global economic weakness and, and Europe in particular and uh, pockets of Asia as well. Um, it's showing up in the numbers and it's showing up in guidance and stocks are getting really punished. Um, and why people didn't realize this was coming is beyond I was gonna me. Say, <laughs> like, how much more could we be talking about it? Um, but it clearly is having an impact. Don't bury Facebook, guys, because. It's not dead yet. Uh, shares up 20% on Wednesday after quarterly revenue increased 32%. And Joe Mager, they actually made money on mobile. They actually hey. they actually did what they said they were going to do. They, they came out uh, during their previous conference call and said, look, it's all about mobile. And now they're starting to show some results. They are. And they're doing it by stuffing ads all up in my Facebook app <laughs> in a very obnoxious way. And I'm kind of tired of it. Um, and yet it's paying off. Well, it's paying off right now. Over the long term, I'm not sure how users are going to feel about continuing to go back to a social network where you just keep getting bombarded with ads. You know, we'll see about that. But you know, sidestepping that, it was a good quarter for them, and they were able to keep growth from falling off. And I think that was really what investors were looking for. It wasn't growth, but just stopping the slowdown, and that happened here. But you know, remember, the stock is still selling at 11 times sales. Google is around five, so you're paying for a lot of growth and expectations. Here. So how's that IPO working out for? I mean, what what is the price now compared to? It's you? much much lower. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's been around halved. Again, yeah. even even when you factor in the fact that shares were up 20% on Wednesday, the stock over the last three months still down about 15%. Um, and we'll get back to the stock in a second. But I, I want to dig into uh, Zynga, because uh, when Facebook reported their results, one of the things that sort of jumped out at us was the fact that the revenue they got from Zynga uh, which does Farmville and and the different games and that sort Cityville, of thing. Cityville, Cityville, Taylorville's. Um, the money they got from Zynga that that revenue was about seven percent a year ago. It was fifteen percent, so they're yeah. less dependent on Zynga. And then you know a, a day or two later, when Zynga came out with their earn, earnings, they kind of crushed it, and and shares of Zynga went up. So uh, it it sort of seemed like. Zynga was in trouble when you looked at Facebook's earnings, but then they kind of surprised on their own. Oh, I think Zynga is in trouble. They only crushed it because they were crushing very low expectations and they have a ton of cash. I do think it's a good move for Facebook to 
kind of wean off of Zynga for gaming. You know, they've got that huge platform. They don't need Zynga to carry the load for them, and they're smart to be recruiting other app developers and game developers to come on and make money for them. What do you think of Facebook stock when you look at the valuation right now? Even with the pop, it's still below where it was on the first day of trade. Well, it IPO'd at a ridiculous price. It was ridiculous. 27 times sales is crazy. And I still think at 11x sales, you're paying way too much for it. Coming up, in the span of one year, this stock fell from the high 60s to $2 a share. And it's back in the news this week. Details next. This is Motley Fool Money. Oh, I'd like to be that man. He's got money to burn. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio with Joe Mager, James Early, and Ron Gross. Crocs was one of the roller coaster stocks of the last decade, and the ride continued this week. Shares down 20% on Thursday after third quarter earnings came in lower than expected. Ron Gross, what's, yes, the, sto- what's the story here? Well, it's all kind of the point. We own this stock in, in the service I run called Deep Value, where we're looking at really, really cheap stocks that often have something less than stellar about them that is making them so cheap. In this case, Weakness in Japan and Europe, hurting um, results. Uh, guidance is weak for the same reason. But we think there's a bright future here. Um, the company is only 48%, those kind of ugly plastic clogs right now. Okay. Great diversification. Joe's wearing some of the new ones right today. Mm-hmm. Like a boating type of so shoe. So the stock's yeah. down to 1250 We actually think it's a, it's a double here. We think it's worth $25 um, because the company's really making the right moves. And the European and Japan issue is not going to be persistent forever. I can't speak to the stock. I will say that when Ron and Rich Griefner first started talking about it, I was skeptical of the quality of the shoes, and naturally then I ordered some. Yeah. Uh, but I, I bought some, and they're basically like boat shoes, but they're Crocs. I love these shoes. Comfortable? Woo-hoo. I absolutely love them. They're incredibly comfortable, and they look good. No one is... No one has been like, "Hey, you're wearing big plastic shoes." Like you can't, you can't tell. They look <laughs> like big normal plastic nice shoes are popular shoes. too. Let's not forget, but they are somewhat, yeah. somewhat less than fashionable. It's almost hard to believe that Crocs hasn't splashed the "they're not big plastic shoes" quote from Joe Mager across their website. <laughs> uh, shares of Netflix down this week after third quarter earnings came in better than expected, but still 88 percent lower than a year ago. That's that's a pretty big it's number. Lower, a bit lower, yeah. It's lower. What'd you think, Joe? Uh, I thought that was lower. Uh, (laughs) This is a quarter where, I mean, the stock got crushed, but I do think bulls and bears, Netflix is basically a battleground stock, right, and has been for a long time. I think bulls, when they saw this quarter, said, okay, um, U.S. subscriber growth was up. That's something that's easy to forget. And even though things are tough in emerging or international markets, they're building a footprint. Uh, One metric that I thought was really telling was that consumption by subscribers was up 30% year over year. And that kind of flies in the face of a lot of challenges people have put out there about content, saying that Netflix doesn't have a very good catalog. Well, clearly, the data is showing people are getting more and more into it. You know, that said, (laughs) the bear case still exists. Uh, Content costs are rising. That's a big challenge. International is still expensive. You know, HBO is likely to roll out, and Netflix said as much. Their own offering competing direct to consumer at some point. Ron, as we talked about in the last segment, Amazon is one of those companies that, uh, for better or worse, seems to get credit from some people anyway for investing in their business. Do you think 
Netflix gets the same kind of credit, or are they on sort of a shorter leash when it comes to the Wall Street analysts and how they look at Netflix's underlying business? It comes and goes. They used to be the darling, um, making all the right moves, and every tastings was you know extremely well respected for kind of building this business that didn't really exist before. You know, DVs and then into streaming. Um, now they're they've fallen from grace a bit through through a number of missteps, and Wall Street is pretty unforgiving when that happens. Uh, the beginning of the year, we did a show on predictions, and I predicted that Netflix would be acquired by the end of this year. I don't know if my timing is right, but I'm gonna, I'm still sticking by that. Joe and I were talking earlier. I think that makes sense. Not for a standalone a company of in a couple of years, yeah. right? I don't yeah. think so. Casino operator Win Resorts up this week after the company's third quarter earnings came in higher than expected. And James Early, I'm assuming you broke out into a dance when you heard the news that the company, in addition to paying out a special one-time dividend of seven dollars, or was it seven fifty? Seven fifty is also going to be doubling its quarterly dividend from fifty cents a share to a dollar per share. I'm still shaking. Uh, actually, you know, <laughs> I do, I do love this. You got to love a company whose income is down, goes down twelve percent, and and they. Double Double their dividend, and then they pay out seven fifty extra. You know, part of this is Steve Wynn. He, he's very—he's uh, just that magnanimous. He's, he's very Republican, and he's—he's he's very he's against Obama. He's—he's he's concerned, and he's—he's he's open about this. It's and true. I think he's concerned that the dividend tax rate could go up. In in you know depending on who's well, if Obama becomes president, he he's even said that the company will will kind of peg their dividend policy to the dividend tax rate. And I think he wants to get some of this cash out the door to shareholders now before that that tax rate probably goes up. And one of the things that we've talked about when it comes to companies increasing their dividends is how sustainable is it? And for some companies, it's more sustainable than others. But when went on the record and saying no 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 yes we're doubling this to a dollar per share, but we think this is sustainable. Do you agree with that? Yeah, and that's the beauty of the special dividend part. Yeah, they they can. They can pay out a bunch more in the special than just, you know, uh, mo- well, not modestly, double their, their regular dividend, too. It's, it's great. It's great. I'm happy. Yeah. Casinos do have a lot of operating leverage, though. So if we do fade back into another recession, I suspect they're really going to regret giving that cash back. You can always drop us an email. Radio at fool.com is our email address. Got an email from Rob Morrissey in Omaha, Nebraska. Guys, huge fan of the program. Want to ask your thoughts on Arcos Dorados Holdings. It's gotten drilled in the last week or so. Is this a stock that you feel has a bright future? Uh, Ron, this is sort of the, as we've talked about before, sort of the McDonald's of Latin America. If the yeah, stock the goes Caribbean. down, it's in Ron's department, right? Is that <laughs> the idea? Oh, yeah. How dare you? Uh, but this is a company we own in Million Dollar Portfolio. And uh, we do like it uh, quite a lot. As you said, um, they have the exclusive right to own, operate, and franchise McDonald's in uh, Latin America and the Caribbean. Stock probably is off this week as a result of some uh, McDonald's um, weakness um, Mm -hmm. uh, when they reported. Longer term, the stock has been weak because the Caribbean is challenged. Parts of Mexico, Venezuela, and Argentina aren't doing so hot. We love the Brazil story here. We think there's a ton of expansion potential in Brazil, and that economy should do well. So overall, despite the challenges, we think the stock makes good sense here. Let's be clear. Right now, the Caribbean is challenged because of Hurricane Sandy, which is right. which is headed our way. So uh, <laughs> it's you know, batting down the hatches. For all our listeners out there, if we're not here next week. That's, That's why. All right. Joe Mager, James Early, Ron Gross. Guys, we'll see you a little bit later in the show. 25 years ago, the top name in consumer electronics retail was Circuit City. But in 2009, it went out of business. And up next, a conversation with former CEO Alan Wurzel on the history of Circuit City and the future of Best Buy. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. 
Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. In 1949, Circuit City started as a mom-and-pop store with a $13,000 investment. The consumer electronics retailer grew and succeeded to the point where Circuit City became the best-performing stock of the 1980s. But by early 2009, the company had filed for bankruptcy and closed every one of its more than 550 locations. So where did it all go wrong? Alan Wurzel is the former CEO of Circuit City. He's the son of Circuit City founder Sam Wurzel. And Alan's new book is Good to Great to Gone, The 60-Year Rise and Fall of Circuit City. And he joins me in studio now. Alan, good to see you. Thanks for coming by. Thanks for inviting me. Um, What happened to Circuit City? Because I I grew up in New England. I moved to the D.C. area about 20 years ago and, you know, sort of had my first real job, first time with disposable income. And I just remember sort of discovering Circuit City and loving it uh, and just really being amazed by it because there wasn't anything like it where I grew up. And what happened? Well, I think Circuit City descended in four steps. Uh, the first step was was in the mid '90s, when the management uh, failed to keep abreast of the changes in consumer uh, taste and consumer uh, desires. The old model, which I had built in the early '80s, was that every customer was greeted by a salesperson and stayed with that salesperson to the conclusion of the sale. By the early '90s, certainly the mid '90s, customers were buying and preferred to buy consumer electronics on the grocery store model, where it's bulked out, you pick it up, you take it to the cashier. If you had questions, uh, many store, some did and some didn't, yep. but the better stores had qualified people to answer your questions, uh, but you didn't have to talk to a salesperson. If you knew what you wanted, and people, a lot of them were self-educated on the internet, they didn't want a lot of conversation. They wanted to pick it up and, and get moving. And we refused, Circuit City refused to accommodate that change in consumer buying preferences. Step two in 2000, my, the second uh, CEO after me, he understood that, he, that the company needed to make substantial changes. I mean, the stores were mislaid out. He couldn't bulk stuff out because most of the store was warehouse and not, and not showroom, so we mm-hmm. have to reconfigure the stores. He understood that changes were needed, um, but he couldn't bring himself or the board to create a strong-minded plan to uh, reorient the company, partly because it would have required very substantial investment. Circuit City could have managed that, but it would have uh, offended Wall Street. So that and his inability to stick with a consistent plan in other areas wasted five years. He retired early, and his successor, uh, was only in the company for 18 months before he became CEO, didn't understand and appreciate the culture. He basically destroyed a culture which rewarded people um, who, who were loyal and hardworking, who asked questions, who wanted to do a good job. And uh, he wanted to tell them what to do. And if they didn't do it the way he'd want it, he fired them. Uh, we fired, my way or the highway? My way or the highway. He, he, we we laid off 3,400 salespeople in one swoop, and then he bragged to Wall Street uh, how much money the company had saved and how much higher the earnings would be, rather than ex- express some regret that 3,400 of the highest paid and therefore the best, most qualified salespeople lost their job. The final step and nail in the coffin was that the board 
over the last five years spent nearly a billion dollars. Circuit City had been a pretty good cash cow, mm-hmm. built up substantial reserves, but they wasted it on buying back company stock, thinking that would uh, maintain the price of the stock, possibly maintain the value of their options. It would certainly, uh, Wall Street appreciated it. And when the 2008 uh, storm hit, the cupboard was bare and Circuit City had no money. Suppliers, of course, in those in the in 2008 were looking for uh, at their credit risks. Were sharpening their pencils. They wouldn't ex- extend Circuit City money for Christmas, and Circuit City had no choice but to close its doors. Now, you were CEO for more than a decade. You stepped down as CEO in 1986, and somewhere along the way. Um, when, again, Circuit City so dominant, both as a business and as a stock in right. the 1980s. And somewhere along the way, there's this up-and-coming electronics retailer by the name of Best Buy. Correct. To what extent, I mean, you, again, you, you left as CEO in, in 86. I think you were chairman until 94. I stayed on the board till 2000. Okay. So, I mean, obviously, a company you've continued to be involved in. As you watch it, at what role did Best Buy play in the demise of Circuit City? I mean, it played a big role. I mean, Circuit City lost its way not only vis-a-vis Best Buy, but also the mass merchants because of the selling format. But we kept this, but the comparison to Best Buy was a direct comparison. I mean, right. nobody knew how much Walmart or Kmart or whatever it was making on electronics, but everybody knew how Best Buy was. And so there was a direct comparison. And the management believed, I mean, this was a certain hubris, that uh, Wall Street at some point would stop uh, providing uh, capital to Best Buy and that Best Buy would fail. Well, during that period, we started in, let's say, uh, 1995. Both st- stores averaged $10 million per store. Five years later, Circuit City was at $12 million per store, and Best Buy was at 40. They had quadrupled their average store sales, wow. while we had increased by 20%. You're listening to Motley Fool Money, talking with Alan Wurzel, former CEO of Circuit City. His new book is Good to Great to Gone, The 60-Year Rise and Fall of Circuit City. Uh, let's stick with Best Buy for a moment, because you mentioned that they had some problems that they were able to solve. But clearly, uh, when you look at bricks-and-mortar retailers across the country, Best Buy is near or at the top of the list in terms of the challenges it is facing. When you look at Best Buy, uh, what advice would you give them uh, <laughs> if they came knocking on your door and said, listen, you've, you've, you've been through the trenches, you've seen the ups and downs of retail, what would you tell them? I'd say three things. Uh, one is go private. And Richard Schultz, the, former, the founder of Best Buy, right. is certainly exploring that option. It's a very messy thing to close stores, let people go, rearrange your inventories, downsize, and it's better done, more efficiently done, out of the glare of analyst and public uh, attention. Secondly, uh, they need to emphasize uh, the geek squad and the services, the after-sale services. Amazon can't come into your house uh, on the internet and fix your TV or hook it up to your you know, to, to your hi-fi system, et cetera. So that's an important step that they took uh, 10 years ago, and I commend them for them. That may end up, if they can downsize fast enough, being the, um, 
the saving uh, aspect of because that that is profitable. And the third thing I would say is see if you can figure out a way to charge for competent, objective consumer information. People still need help in deciding which is the best refrigerator for their needs, the best TV, the best computer. Uh, They want help. Not everybody, but lots of people. And if you could charge a customer for objective information, maybe in in the way that The Motley Fool charges for providing uh, stock and the market information, the customers would might be willing to pay for that, and whatever they pay could be applied to the purchase if they buy at Best Buy, and uh, not you know, and it goes into Best Buy's pocket if they decide to turn around and buy it on the internet. There are a bunch of great things about your book, but uh, one of them is uh, the lessons that you provide because this is not just sort of a look backwards at you know, how did this company succeed and how did it ultimately fail? But you're also providing lessons in this book that I think would apply to to most, if not any, businesses. Um, We we talked earlier about um, emphasizing uh, your own customers and employees versus placing an emphasis on what Wall Street thinks, that whole notion of corporate culture. What are a couple of of the other sort of key takeaways, you think, for, for people who are either uh, managing their own business or looking to start a business? Uh, the first, and I think maybe the most important, is what I call be humble, run scared. <laughs> when you think you know the answers, that's when you're in trouble. There's always somebody at your back, some competitor that wants to have a, that has a new idea, a new angle, uh, that's trying to, to take business away from you. And I think one of Circuit City's problems, I mean, one of Detroit's problems in the you know, in the 90s and 2000s, was they didn't run scared. They didn't think the Japanese or, or, or Koreans could build a better build a car that would appeal to Americans. And uh, the hubris, uh, I think, did them in. A second principle, I think, is curiosity. I call it curiosity sustains the cat. You just can't look. That kind of goes in, against what we've heard for decades, certainly my entire life. The curiosity actually kills the cat. Yeah, well, in business, You're I You're going to get some angry letters, I think, about that one. <laughs> From cat lovers. Yes. <laughs> I think curiosity sustains the cat because you've got to look around. You've got to see what other companies are doing. We were interested in what Disney was doing, the way Disney handled customers at uh, Disneyland. I mean, they were superb at managing large crowds of people. I think uh, your book uh, is amazing in this respect, because if you had walked off the stage as CEO in 1986 after the amazing run that the company had had, that the stock had had, and in 1987 came out with you know a, a new business book, and it's Alan Wurzel's Lessons of Leadership, How I Built This Amazingly Successful Retailer, Electronics Retailer. Uh, that book would probably be embraced. No one would begrudge you that. And certainly, we see that all the time today. Where, But what you've done is you've actually gone back to a company that you helped to, to found and run, and you've essentially done an autopsy on what happened. And in doing so, sort of embraced the role of a journalist. You, you conducted 40, 50 interviews for this. When you were doing all of that research, did anything surprise you? <laughs> Well, I, I wasn't surprised what I learned about the earlier years of the company because I was there sure. and I, I I knew it pretty well. Um, I, I learned a lot about the last years uh, that he didn't know because I was off the board for the last nine years. And I was shocked at, A, the way they treated people, the way they couldn't uh, 
come up with a and stick to a meaningful, disciplined, and uh, powerful strategy to catch up. And finally, with the reckless uh, distribution of uh, money and buying back stock to support the price of the stock, it was uh, a tragedy. Has the work you've done on this book whetted your appetite for a second career in journalism? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> the book is Good to Great to Gone, The 60-Year Rise and Fall of Circuit City. It is an amazing read with some fantastic lessons. Alan Wurzel, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. I've enjoyed it. Those things money can buy to have a one-way... Coming up, we'll give you an inside look at the stocks on our radar. Stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio once again, Joe Mager, James Early, and Ron Gross. Guys, before we get to the stocks on our radar, another email. You can always email us, radio at fool.com. Email from Yael Avidan in New York City. She writes, I'm a relatively new investor and have a small portfolio of stocks that I've collected over the past two years. A couple of them are now showing really nice gains of about 40%. Whoa. And I'm not, that's awesome. Yeah. We love yeah. when that happens. Uh, and I'm not sure how to proceed. Should I cash out, at least partially, or continue to hold if I believe they have long term potential? I hear some market experts talking about locking in gains, especially when the market is pulling back but would love to hear your thoughts on this. Uh, Joe, what do you think? I think you should only sell a stock if you think it's wildly overvalued or you think that something has changed in your original thesis. So either results aren't coming in as well as you expected, management isn't doing right by shareholders, something is going on specific to the company that you don't like. Otherwise, there's nothing wrong with holding on to a stock that's done well for you and letting it continue to run so long as you continue to believe in the current thesis, current management team. James? And I will add, if you're not into valuation proper, a lot depends on the quality of the company. In other words, if it's a top quality company, the balls are more likely to bounce in your favor overall, long term. Results just tend to get better and better. But I think Ron would even agree with me. As a value guy, sometimes you can have a poorly managed company that's just trading for a really, really poor price. Once you get your valuation on that kind of company, you might want to sell because Mm -hmm. it's not necessarily the kind of well-run company you want to hold for a long term. But if it is a good company, just hold it. Is my default. And I will add that if any one or two companies have become too large a portion of your overall portfolio because you're not well diversified, that might be a reason you want to pare back a little bit because your risk kind of profile of your portfolio might be a little bit out of whack. All right. Well, I'm going to caveat on that. And even though I agree, <laughs> but only after I caveat, <laughs> I agree with that point, especially if you're you know older and you have a robust, uh, diversified portfolio. But if you're in your 20s, you know you're still building out a portfolio. If you're like 25. 30, you don't need to own 35, 40 stocks like you do when you're, say, 55, Ron's 60. age. Yeah, when you're ancient. <laughs> but when you're, uh, when you're younger, you're still adding out that base. You don't want commissions to eat up too much of the amount of stock that you're buying. So that's okay. All right, let's get to the stocks that we have on our radar. And we'll bring in our man, Steve Broder, from the other side of the glass. He'll ask you a question. And you can fire one right back at him. And with Hall- Halloween just around the corner, you know, feel free to go off the board and just throw a random Halloween question his way. But, Ron, you're up first. What's your stock this week? Um, I'm looking at BJ's Restaurants, BJRI, a recent stock advisor recommendation here. Stock is down 16% this week on lower than expected earnings, um, which is what got me interested in it. Uh, 126 restaurants, mostly California, Texas, Florida. A lot of expansion potential, or so they say, to really build out um, that store base. I didn't think it looked cheap. 
the 16% pullback has me a little bit more interested. So this isn't BJ's warehouse? No, it's just restaurants. The restaurants. Exactly. Steve? Aren't restaurants ter- typically just terrible investments? It's a very tough business. That is, a, Yeah, exactly. Steve that, has been listening to the show. Yeah, no, that's, that's, I totally agree with you. And that's why, from a valuation perspective, I would need to see it uh, cheap. I would not want to bet too much on future growth and future margins. Um, so cheap, maybe, but otherwise, I would stay away. Question for Steve? What is your favorite casual service restaurant, like the Applebee's kind of... It's not Halloween related. Well, I'm getting there. I'm going Olive Garden. Yeah. Oh, that's right. That's right. Big fan. What a flop of a question. And and, and Snickers or Baby Ruth? Snickers, all the way. James? I'm going to go, Chris, with a Nebraska-based company called Buckle. This is a fashion, like a jeans-type store. It's an income investor recommendation. They make pricey jeans, 100 bucks typically on up. Lifetime hemming, in case you decide to grow a little bit, shrink, and then <laughs> grow again. Lifetime hemming, did you yeah, say? Yeah, they do. You can bring it uh-huh. back as many times as you want. Um, high return on equity. Insiders own 43% of this company, and both the chairman and the current CEO started as sales clerks. I see about 18% upside. I bet that's the first time the word hemming has been used on this show. I think, I think so. Or any yeah. show. Hopefully not the last. Uh, ticker symbol? B-K-E. Steve? Uh, it, who's? I'm assuming they're competing with the Abercrombie and Fitch in that realm. Is that? Am I right? Kind of. Yeah. They're they're a little bit more pants oriented only, and they're in the Midwest. And the Midwest has a lot of fracking money, you know, and ethanol money. So it's actually the economies are doing pretty well in some of these states where, where these guys operate. And lifetime hemming. Lifetime hemming. Did I mention that? Question for Steve. S- Steve, this Halloween uh, promises to be a rainy Halloween, so I'm trying to get a costume that works. Uh, speed skater or something else? Uh, for you, I would go speed skater all the speed way. Speed skater, okay, okay. I think that you could have the, the, the Lycra suit and the hat, and you'd be good to go. You'd be waterproof. You know what? Yeah, you can follow us on Twitter as well, at Motley Fool Money. Why you handle. would want to, I don't know. And, and uh, here's why. Because if James actually shows up in a speed skating car, we'll tweet that photo out. <laughs> Joe Maker, what's your stock this week? Pebblebrook Hotel Trust. Yeah. They own 25 luxury hotels across the U.S. The real trophy properties, uh, San, uh, Sir Francis Drake, San Francisco, Intercontinental in Atlanta, and Hotel Monaco here in D.C., which has wonderful cocktails. Uh, <laughs> the stock is down today because they lowered guidance, but overall, I think fundamentals are moving in the right direction, pays a nice dividend that I think has a lot of growth ahead of it. And the ticker symbol? P-E-B. P-E-B. Steve? Where's the most money to be made in a hotel? Hmm. In a hotel. Well, I think these guys specialize particularly in bringing people in, obviously, but also cross-selling in the restaurant and bar. So they come in, reface that, and they make a lot of money that way. Yeah, if Joe's staying at the hotel, it's at the bar. That's where the money's <laughs> to be made. Uh, do you have a question for Steve? Yeah, my wife and I are thinking about having kids. Should we have a boy or a girl? I think you should have both. How is that Halloween related? Why do you say that? Because I have a boy, uh, but if I said girl, then... That would be weird. So, yeah, well, I mean, you got to just, just, just walk go with both. Trap. Yeah, but your son's one. He doesn't listen to this show, though, does he? Of course he does. <laughs> of course he does. He's got excellent taste. Um, it, just in the few seconds we have left, I know that you picked Snickers over Baby Ruth, Steve, but is that is that your go-to candy for Halloween? Or, and if not, what's number one on your list? Uh, I would say between Snickers or Reese's uh, Peanut Butter Cups. Peanut, whatever you get the Peanut Butter Cups, you've hit gold. Ron? Take five. Chocolate-covered pretzel, caramel, I think, as well. Mm. I'm not a candy guy, but I, I do like peppermint patties. Reese's. Reese's. All right. You? That's a good group. Yeah. M&M's mm-hmm. all the way. Huh. I'm old, old school. school. Old Joe Mager, Ron Gross, James Early. Guys, thanks for being here. Thank, Thank you, Chris. Chris. That's it for this edition of Motley Fool Money. Our engineer is Steve Broido. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We will see you next week.